Thanks, Val. Thanks, John. Hey, everyone. I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors. I get to teach this text this afternoon. It's kind of fun to be here. Last weekend, I was teaching at Young Life's Family Camp, which is a bunch of folks in their 30s and 40s and their kids, um, all kind of pulling their ignorance on how to parent stuff, and I got to lead them through that process. And then I, uh, this past week, I taught at Scottsdale Christian Academy's camp up in the exact same place in Young Life, uh, Lost Canyon Williams Place, and that's pretty fun for me. I feel like teaching high school camps are like really fun. One, I th- I'm pretty certain I became a Christian at a high school camp at Young Life Lost Canyon Williams, so it's kind of like a back to square one thing for me personally in my, my own faith, but also um, it's really great just getting hired to teach something and you don't have to worry about all the other admin and details. It's like the easiest job ever, so it's fun to come in and do the easy part as far as that goes and then, and then leave, but the, my favorite part about doing the high school camp stuff is watching in particular the freshman boys evolve from week from day one until, until the end because, you know, day one they come in and all of their eyes are focused left and right doing this, you know, like, do we care about this? We don't care about this, right? Do we care? You know, and they're kind of like looking left, looking right, looking for social cues, trying to figure out how to fit in and they're caring about all the wrong things uh, but they're certainly caring about them. And, you know, like, we don't care about this. No, we don't care about this. We care about, you know, we're, we're free thinkers, all of us, right? We're all free thinkers, right? And that's kind of how, how it goes. But then you, you watch over the course of time. They have fun. They laugh. They, they enjoy themselves. They hear a couple sermons. They, they hear the music. And over time, they loosen up and they become less obsessed with turning their heads left and right. And they end up kind of dialing in more. And some of that kind of like social arresting uh, preoccupation begins to fade away and they kind of get tuned up and actually pay attention. And by the end, you see them actually engaged uh, vertically and in front of them and not just preoccupied going left and right stuff. And it's, it's fun to see that happen with the high schoolers because it's always happening with adults too. We just have, a ten, we not always have, we tend to have better mechanisms for covering up and pretending like we're not doing it, right? But we're all, we're all doing that here every Sunday. We're all doing that um, in, our, in our day-to-day lives. We're going, hey, I want to fit in, but not all the way in. I want to be my own person, but not enough of my own person that I stick out. And that kind of socialization thing is going on. And we're trying to figure out uh, what's the line, where do we cross, what do I want to be, what type of person. And that kind of fighting the tension between, I want to care about God, but I also don't want to stand out from the faith community. I want to be interested in what's going on, but I don't really want to stand out too. And this story in 2 Samuel 6 and 7, part of the reason I'm looking at these high schoolers through this lens this week uh, is because I'm studying this. And we just read the story about Uzzah who cares about the wrong stuff. And then you read the next story about Michael, who cares about the wrong stuff. And then we have a story about David, who seems to care about the right stuff. And so one of the questions for us is, what should we care about? What should we be preoccupied with? What should be grabbing our attention? And also, what are the things that we're tempted to care a ton about that we actually should not be caring about? We see that story in this text. And here's what I'm going to argue is that here's the big idea is that when you really experience the holiness of God, when you, when you come into contact with God, a recalibration, a reorientation, a tuning up happens that you become careful about certain things, careless about other things, and there's this eternal sense of confidence that we see. Really, we see that in the first story, there's this carefulness that's produced because of what happens to Uzzah. In the second story, there's this carelessness that David's not ashamed about. In the third story, David has this confidence that really drives him uh, in his view of the future. And so what I'm going to invite all of us to do as Redemption Gateway, as, as folks um, dialing in right now, is to really do a little personal inventory. Do I care about the right stuff, the right amount, 
or am I preoccupied with the wrong stuff and I should be more careless that direction? So let me pray and then we'll walk through this text. Jesus, I pray that you help us see. I pray that we would see your holiness and uh, be appropriately aware of uh, how much certain things matter, how much other things don't matter. God, I pray that we would be cognizant of uh, the pull to care about the wrong things. And I pray with regards to those things, we would instead be careless. So in your name we pray. Amen. So first things first, this is kind of a pretty intense story, right? Uh, They're carrying the Ark of God on a cart, taking it from where it was to Jerusalem. And I want us to understand here, the significance of this moment is David has just become king. It is his first kind of like main act that he's leading Israel, and he is setting himself apart from his predecessor. He's going, Saul, my predecessor, gave lip service to the authority of God and instead used God to serve his political and personal agenda. That is exactly how uh, God plays out in the political realm. Overwhelmingly, the majority of the time, if you turn on the news, is there's someone using God to serve their political and personal agendas. Rather, David is going, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to give lip service to God's authority for branding purposes. I'm going to actually submit to God's authority. And symbolic of that, I'm going to take the presence of God that's symbolized by the ark, and I'm going to move it straight to smack dab in the middle. This is a God-centered nation called Israel. So we're going to move this ark to the center, and this is going to be symbolic of how breaking generational pattern from Saul, under David's reign, we're going to be a God-shaped people. I just want you to be aware as you watch the news and read stuff and hear about all this politics stuff that people love to use God to brand themselves as godly people when in fact they have no desire to submit to God and His law. They just want to brand themselves and market themselves in a certain way. We have to have our eyes open to the reality that people like King Saul are normal in secular society. That just because someone says God doesn't mean they want to follow God. It most likely means they're taking the Lord's name in vain to serve themselves. And David, at his first move, is trying to set himself apart from that pattern and from that plan. But one of the things we learn in this first story is that good intentions are not good enough when it comes to following God. They put the ark on a cart, Philistine technology, and they have it being pulled by oxen. Now that sounds harmless, except for the fact that multiple times they have been told how to transport the ark which which holds God's presence. They said, transport it like this, do this, don't do this. I'm going to read one of those examples just so you get a feel for it. Um, Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and put the poles into rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark by them. Uh, Later it goes on to say, who should carry the ark? And it's the priests, that the priests of God were meant to carry the ark by poles. This is a personal caravan situation, not impersonal foreign technology that's meant to just drive the ark along by means of efficiency and as little work as possible. So the first mistake they make is by disregarding God's instructions in the details. The second mistake they make is they were told unholy things cannot come into contact with the holy. And so the ark begins to fall. It stumbles. Uzzah reaches out his hand to catch it, touches it, dies. Now if you read that the first time like me, you go, sounds a little harsh for someone who is just trying to help But think about, this. here's the principle, good intentions are not good enough when it comes to obedience. That nobody's justified on the basis of I did what, was thought, what I thought was right in my own eyes. 
that God has made clear, don't do this, and you'll live, do this, and you die, and he does it. And so Wayne Grudem, who has taught ethics for me at Phoenix Seminary in theology, in Ethics 501, Biblical Ethics 501, talked about this text all the time. And it's a good test case for our own hearts because the reality of what we really believe is revealed in moments of crisis. If you really believe, I touch this, I die, then when it falls, you go, whoa, not touch that. If you don't believe, when you touch this, I die, if you think, yeah, God gave some laws about this, but who really takes those that seriously? We're just trying to move a thing. Oh, oh. in the heat of the moment, when we're given the opportunity to obey or disobey, to lie and cheat and steal or not, to gossip, slander, malign or not, to submit to God or not, it's in these moments that our beliefs are truly revealed. And if you're like me, I think about those moments and I go, oh, shoot. Because what, what I really believe is revealed all the time as being not that much belief. Even David, the king who's trying to be different, who's trying to set a new trajectory, who's trying to set a different standard, he sees Uzzah drop dead and he goes, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not touching that thing. Take it over there. And for three months, he's like, I'm not going close. I'm not touching it that all of a sudden, everybody is sobered up to the reality of God's law, the reality of God's promises, and there's this gut check moment for what looks like everybody. Because they're coming along, slapping tambourines, ce- celebrating, dancing, harps, leers, Uzzah passes, step back, oh snap, this is more serious than we thought it was. <laughs> it's kind of like every Saturday, uh, not every Saturday, a lot of Saturdays, we make pancakes in our house, you know, I get the the big pancake thing out, and you know, Jay pushes over, Jay's two and a half, almost three, pushes over his stool, stands up, and as soon as they put it down, he goes like, is it hot, Dad? And I say, no, and he goes. I'm like, he really believes what I'm saying. He really believes me. He really does believe me. You know, then I plug it in, he goes, is it hot yet? I was like, it's getting hot, not hot yet. And he touches it. And I'm just waiting for the day when I say, yes, it's hot, and he goes, don't believe you. Ah! You know, and I'm I don't want that to happen. I'm hoping it doesn't happen. It's probably going to happen. Everybody I know has had it happen, you know. And so, I'm not, but you test the boundaries with the Lord and you lose. I just want all of us to see like the holiness of God should produce some substantial measure of carefulness where you're just kind of handling it a little more difficulty because I'm, I'm sure that even if Jay touches that thing and he burns himself, next time I tell him that's not hot, he's going to go, okay, I'm not going to test it. <laughs> you know, we have this girl in the back. Uh, it's Traeger, you know, but we have this uh, smoker in the back and I took off the cover and it was laying to the side and then a monsoon happened and it was kind of a whole thing and it kind of got nasty and so then I went to put it back on because I let it off for a couple of days because I was trying to let it dry off and go to put it back on and as I'm putting it on, you know, it's a baby scorpion kind of like crawls right out, you know, and it's, you know, how to put your stomach in your throat in one second, you know, and uh, I've never put that cover on the same again. (laughs) You know, a, a little dose of 
fear, of sobriety, of you don't know what's going on. Like this produces a carefulness. We had this uh, phrase at our church that we call like, um, we take God seriously, but not ourselves. This is the first part of that phrase. We take God seriously. God is not to be mocked. He's not to be messed with. His word is to be believed and obeyed. And we take God seriously. Uh, but the second part of it, and this is one of the hard things, is holding these things together. How do you take God seriously and not your t- take yourself seriously? Because it's very easy to take both seriously. It's just called being a religious fundamentalist who's grumpy about everything, right? That's, we, that's easy. That's it. I've seen that. I know how to do that. Um, I could get there sometimes. Like, I'm serious and I'm right and I, I you know, do what I think. And it just kind of becomes this like stuffy, stagnant, serious thing. And I can also know how to not take God seriously and not take myself seriously. It's called most people everywhere. Like that's, that's pretty easy. Like I know that script, but how do you take God seriously and not take yourself seriously? Well, David is pretty able to do this. Uh, and his wife, Michael, seems pretty unable to do this. Uh, Michael, we're going to see, is really concerned with appearances. And David is showing, showing that he's careless with regards to his appearance. He does not care what people think about him. He does not care what his wife thinks about him, that he's willing to cross the line for the sake of joy and love of God. He's not being weird for the sake of being weird. It's not like he's just showing up dressed as a pirate going like, hey, you know, I don't care what people think about me. It's like he's, he's on purpose willing to rejoice in the Lord to the point that it is socially weird. And so Michael, the opposite. So um, his wife, Michael. So before this, in 1 Samuel, and even the first part of this text, he, she's referred to as Michael, um, David's wife, or Michael, just a woman. And, but here, she's referred to three times as Michael, the daughter of Saul. We see that in verse 16, verse 20, Michael, the daughter of Saul, uh, verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul, that she is becoming like her father. There are moments where, you know, my dad uh, is a coach, you know, he has, and people will, I'll, I'll be acting like my dad and someone's like, okay, Seth, son of Jay, you know, and it's like saying, you're talking like a high school coach, you know, that's kind of that type of deal. It's not meant to be an insult, it's just like, you look like your father right now. And so here Michael is referred to as Michael, son of Saul, which is a bad thing because he was someone who gave irreverence to God, lip service to God, and cared more about his personal agenda than about actually obeying God. And what we see is David's dancing, having a great time, celebrating. In verse 16, it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. It's not a good thing to hate someone for. Look at that person enjoying God's presence. Look at that person leaping and dancing, celebrating what God has done. Disgusting. (laughs) See, Michael is going, uh, I'm okay with David doing religious things, but as soon as that starts making him stand a little bit or a step outside like social process of norms, I'm not into that. I don't want him embarrassing us, embarrassing the family. I don't want him looking weird and crazy. It really bothers me. And so Michael, the daughter of Saul, comes and says, how has the king of Israel dishonored himself today, uncovering himself before these female servants? David has these employees who are helping him do stuff, and he's dancing around in front of them, and, and Michael doesn't like it. Um, you're, you're one of some fellow fi- vulgar fellow shamelessly uncovering himself. And David says to Michael, uh, just so you know, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me as king over Israel, prince over Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And I'll make myself even more contemptible than this. I'll become abased in your eyes. These female servants that you're saying have seen me, they understand God more than you do. Go back to your house. 
He's not tolerating it. He's not going, oh, I'm embarrassing you. Okay, I'll tone down the worship of God most high. He's going, look, you sound like your father who didn't care about God. And I just want you to know that you need to get on board with celebrating what God is doing, but I'm not gonna get on board with it. See, this is exactly the way I think that followers of Jesus are told to be in a box in modern society and even possibly in this church. You being moderately into Jesus, like at a solid six out of 10, will never frustrate anybody. You can worship Jesus, say believe Jesus rose from the dead, come to church on Sundays, not a problem. Nobody's offended by that. Nobody's frustrated by that. Nobody's bothered by that. Six out of 10 faith. But you start crossing social boundaries. You start integrating the lordship of Jesus into your entire life. You start transcending social expectations for the purpose of celebrating what God is doing in your life. And people will get uncomfortable and want you to go back. See, David's being 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, excited about what God is doing. And Michael's going, I was on board with you following the Lord, but now it's getting out of hand. Rain it in. Dial it down. Chill out. And David goes, I am just getting started following the Lord. Reset your expectations. And I hope that we as a church understand this, that if we expect to follow Jesus in the public square, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in the places where we're, we're seen by people, and we are not prepared that we will be seen as contemptible or abased, then we're out to lunch. We're foolish. That truly having God take a hold of your heart and him calling you into something is going to change the way that you engage and interact. And there will be this process where you go outside the bounds of social process, social norms. See, a lot of what happens at this church, and this is, I don't know if this is me being cynical or what, me being disillusioned or whatever it is. Um, a lot of what's happening here can or could be explained by just sociology. People go where people go. The Southeast Valley is growing, we're going, we're growing. But I long for us to be the type of church, the type of place that cannot be explained by sociology. That cannot be explained by, well, people like going where their friends go. Well, people like being reinforced about the stuff that's going on. People like, I, I just hope that we can be the place that like David are not just doing social stuff and in that social thing, kind of the snowball effect and then it's bigger. But that actually we are worshiping the Lord in a way that actually risks our social acceptance and risks what we have on the line and we're actually crossing lines that God is asking us to cross. See, Michael is being careful about the wrong things. And here David is modeling for us a form of carelessness that I hope we all embrace. That when it comes to following the Lord and worshiping him and obeying him, that we'd be pretty inconsiderate of how that makes other people feel. I was talking to a couple of my neighbors, this is maybe a year or two ago, who don't really go to church, they've come to like one of these church, they've kind of basically gone to all the churches around the area once or twice. Uh, I was asking what they think about it and, and here's what the guy said and I just want you to know, this is his perspective is I think the majority of people's perspective about faith in Jesus. He said, I appreciated the part 
where the pastor gave us tips about life. Tips about life. He's like, it was like a TED Talk, but just worse. It's like a concert, but just a little worse. But the tips for life were good. I appreciate that. You know, all the people raising their hands and like singing to nothing, that was kind of creeped me out. It's like, good. <laughs> if you believe that God isn't real and a bunch of people singing to nothing, that's what we're doing. You know, if, that, if God's not real, then that's exactly what we're doing. We're giving mediocre TED Talks and mediocre concerts and singing to nothing, and that's, that's exactly what is happening if God's not real. And I just want to, like, that's the type of freaking people out that I want us to keep doing. That's okay. Like, I, I want us as adults, not just high schoolers, to be less concerned looking left, looking right, and be more content to just worship the Lord, enjoy Him, be formed by Him, and move forward. We're forgetful people. We really are, all the time. We are so tempted to drift like Uzzah into believing our good intentions are good enough. Or to drift like Michael, thinking, I can just fit into the religious community and that's good enough. But instead here you see this sober carefulness and carelessness sparked by the presence of God that I hope is palpable and transformative here in this church. Because we don't just gather here to hear a sermon and sing songs, but we gather here in expectation, hoping the Spirit will change us and do something and and shape us and mobilize us and, and shake us up a little bit. The main ministry of this church is hopefully that we gather for the Spirit to lay hold of us and grab us and remind us of what we already know. My guess is most of the time you all come to church, you're not having your mind blown by brand new information. Most of the time it's God made you, you're a sinner, Jesus loves you, he died for you, follow him. And that's like the centerpiece of what we do every single week. That's just a reminder. And it's those spirit-infused reminders are the main reason we do what we do. You know, I have a dog named Calvin, and he um, barks at all the wrong stuff and doesn't bark at all the right stuff. You know, someone knocks at the door, he doesn't bark. You're like, what are you doing? And then, you know, the neighbor's flag waves. He loses his mind. He sees his, he sees his reflection in the sliding door, barks, loses his mind, you know. And it's most, like, difficult when he, like, we're trying to feed Olivia, who's, like, not, she's seven months old, so which mostly means she just spreads stuff. She doesn't really, you know, it's like... Uh, she gets the percentage of stuff in her mouth is like a professional baseball player, about 30%, you know, goes in. Everything else goes everywhere else. And so Calvin's all yelpy and screaming and eager and excited. And so we got the shot collar for him. And if you have mixed feelings about that, I don't. So that's how that, <laughs> so that goes. You know, I, I shocked myself with it. So that's how I closed my moral loophole, right? I did it to myself. I'm okay doing it to others. But it, the shot collar goes from like one to 10. I've only ever done it on a five to him. I've done it harder than that to me. And it does kind of make your arm jump, you know, so it's pretty good. But I've, you, it, there's like a beep, like just a reminder that shot collar's on. There's a vibrate, and then there's a shock. And I'm pretty sure I've only shocked that dog once or twice. I mean, it's been a while, but now when he's being all like rickety and weird, I put that shot collar on him and he just chills right out. Okay, okay, game over, game's over, you know. Sometimes you have to beep it, and he's like, oh, that was helpful, you know, thank you for the reminder, you know. I forgot I had this thing on, no, stop. I haven't haven't shocked him in, like, months, and I just, like, that's, 
that's the type of like reminder, awareness, like, like we just drift so quickly into religious pragmatists like Uza or social religious pragmatists like Michael. That's a form of atheism, going through the motions, being pragmatic. That we function as atheists like that all the time and we need these reminders to bring ourselves back, bring ourselves back, bring ourselves back because if we think for a second that we're going to be unlike Uzzah or unlike Michael, we're just silly. Like I feel like multiple times a day I find myself there just being a religious pragmatist or being some type of social conformist. It just, you know, I would never, it never is like that obvious but you find it in your heart and we need to be reminded that we're not atheists. God is real. He's around. I revere him. He's holy. Remind me of that. That's one of the reasons why we pray, one of the reasons why we read the scriptures, why we gather, why we come here every Sunday, is we need to be reminders of this. I think one of my favorite things about, you know, having kids is like uh, Jay's still in this age where he's totally shameless. Like you see, you see like middle schoolers, high schoolers, and they're way more socially preoccupied but I don't know when that happens, but it hasn't quite yet happened for Jay. But he's just like, I am who I am. And if people walk away weird, like if you say, hey, Jay, can I see you dance? He just goes for it, you know? There's, <laughs> you go, hey, Jay, do that again for them. I was okay. <laughs> and I think when Jesus talked about having childlike faith, I feel like that's a huge chunk of that. It's just like this purity of shameless joy that's rooted and... Uh, I'm not all that preoccupied with doing what you all expect me to do. And here we see that with David. Dan- like, when's lot, like David's, David's dancing to the Lord with all his might. Have you ever danced with, for anything with all your might? I don't know what that would look like. Sounds dangerous. You're going to pull something. You know, I'm, I'm getting older. I don't know what all your might looks like, but here's David all the way sold out all in, and here comes his wife to tempt him into normalcy. Come on, just come back in, fit in. Just don't get back inside the box. Which leads me to the next thing that we see here with David is the action stops, the narrative slows down, there's this huge pause, the ark is back in Jerusalem, there's like this moment because so far for all of 1 Samuel, all the way up to this chapter 6, it's action, 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 action. And then 2 Samuel 7 is like this really kind of first big pause moment where David's pauses, reflects. After just having this like worship experience with the Lord, he goes, you know what? I have a house. God's in this ark thing. I'm going to build God a house. He goes to the prophet Nathan, who kind of functions as his pastor, says, hey, I was thinking about building God a house. And Nathan says, do that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Follow your heart, David. That's what Nathan says. Then, that same night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. I'll summarize it. He says, don't build me a house. <laughs> you, David, you're not going to be the one to build me a house. Actually, David, your son's going to be the one to build me your house, and you'll never see it happen. He says this, when your days are filled and you lie down with your fathers, that's poetry talk for you die, um, I'll raise you up. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I mean, David, you've taken the kingdom this far and this is where you're to stop now. 
Your son's going to be the one to cross this finish line. Your son's going to be the one to take it through the end zone. Your son's going to be the one to build the temple. So just chill out. That's a great example for us. Follow your heart until God says don't do that. And then you stop following your heart. David doesn't really change what he wants, but he just hears that. He's corrected. And David receives that with pretty good attitude. He goes, you know what? God's the one who builds us. I don't build any for him. He doesn't need me. I'm going to serve him till the day I die. And he prays this prayer. Lord, your name, this is verse 26 and verse 7. Lord, your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Meaning all that comes after me, all of my legacy, all of my lasting influence, the throne that I've established that will come after me, it's all on you, God, and I trust you with it. He's not preoccupied with, I have to establish something. He's going, if God said, I'll do it, don't worry about it, then I'm good with that. And he says, verse 27, For you, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I'll build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David goes, I am not worried about the future of God's people because of God's promise. I'm not preoccupied with my legacy because of God's promise. I'm not, I'm even being corrected to think I thought I was one who's going to build God a house and God told me he's going to build his own house and he's going to build my house. God's the one establishing me. I'm not the one establishing God. And David prays with courage going, my name will be great, my legacy will be great, the throne will come after me will be great. And it has nothing to do with me. I'm done here. This is all on God. And so 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most quoted passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because this is like a centerpiece theological um, um, promise in which God says, the throne of David will endure forever. That it's the the kingdom of Israel has been uh, tossed to and fro and it's not gone well at the time. But guess what? The throne of David will will, will reign forever. And that's why part of the reason Jesus is called the son of David in the gospels all the time. is He's like, you're the descendant of David we've been waiting for. You're the one who's going to sit on this throne forever. You're the one who's going to build my eternal temple. You're the one who's going to establish unshakingly the kingdom of God on earth. But it's not you, David. It's Jesus. And this text for me has been encouraging because I, maybe it's just because I'm a pastor, but I get emails almost every day that's like, look at the statistics. Aren't you worried for the church? Look at Gen Z. Look at the millennials. Look at how much of them are walking away from the faith. Look at how many people don't care about God anymore. Look at like numbers, graphs, charts. Buy this book. Solve your problems. And it just feels like I'm bombarded with all this. Aren't you anxious about the future of God's work in the world? What are you going to do about it? And I read texts like this and I'm like, I'm not worried at all. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not concerned about the future of God's people. I'm not concerned about the future of God's throne. I'm not concerned about whether the kingdom will break through the gates of hell or not because I've been told time and time again and history has proven time and time again that gates of hell do not prevail. That the kingdom of God will not be shaken. That God is sitting eternally on his throne. That yes, there's trends up, there's trends down, there's waxing, there's waning, there's growing, there's shrinking, there's difficulty, there's problems. But ultimately, I'm just not concerned about it. 
If every single staff member, covenant member, pastor, elder at this church got hit by a bus tomorrow, guess what? Kingdom of God unshaken. If this place burns down, we default on our mortgage, and everyone has moral failure all at the same time, guess what? Kingdom of God not shaken. If all of you decide, Jesus isn't for me, I'm out, guess what? Kingdom of God unshaken. That there is nothing ultimately to be concerned about. Do you believe that? All this overworking, God needs me to do stuff or else? We better take that hill or else? What about, what about, what about? I'm going, okay, so take a step back. Yes, we want to leverage what we've been given. We are blessed to be a blessing. We want to be strategic where we can be. We want to be faithful all the time. We want to pursue fruitfulness in ministry and do the best job we can. But none of it is riding on that. I'm not concerned. It's kind of like how I feel about bedtime at my house. It's a war, but I always win. <laughs> I always win. There might be running around and no dad and I don't think so and I need another drink of water and how can we watch TV and uh, you know, the, my son has become like, I don't know how like all toddlers have the same list of like excuses to delay bedtime. They, they don't talk to each other and collaborate, but it's always like, I need a drink of water. I think I have to go potty. Can you scratch my back? Um, you know, and I'm like, how, how, how does every kid two years old need a drink of water? I just feel like it's, but when I'm like handling that well, is when I'm going, you know what? No matter how, whether this takes 10 minutes or 40 minutes, this kid's gonna end up asleep and I'm gonna end up victorious. You know, so. <laughs> That's how I feel about church in America, this church, whatever it is. There's going to be problems. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be issues. But guess what? At the end of the day, God's going to reign, and it's going to be okay. So it doesn't give us an excuse to just check out, do nothing, care about nothing. But this is, we should be able to pray like this, have the courage and the confidence, this ultimate grounding in that we are trending up and to the right, even if there's difficulty, that he says, you, Lord of hosts, have made this revelation saying, I will build you a house. This is a house, a house of David, that we are part of the family of David as being in Christ, faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the one reigning on the throne. And I just want you to know that there will be issues, there will be difficulty, there will be social upheaval, there will be resistance, but nothing is ultimately on the line. So we do our best, but we don't need to stress about it. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you will enable us to truly care about the right things, to be truly careful. That just as David offers a sacrifice every six steps out of an abundance of caution and carefulness, I pray that we'd be similarly, chronically mindful of the fact that you're with us, that we'd be aware of this, that we'd be mindful of your presence, aware of it, that we wouldn't drift into this functional atheism all the time. And God, I pray as we face temptation to uh, seclude ourselves back into social norms, even if it's just being accepted by the religious community, I pray that we'd break through that and push through that and that we would uh, be overcome with joy in a way that causes us to truly worship, in a way that uh, even makes other people uncomfortable. And God, I ask that as we consider the future for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren, for our great-great-grandchildren, I pray that you would help us be diligent but unafraid, that we'd be confident in your promise, 
that our trust would not be in religious leaders, religious strategy, but instead in the promises of God. In your name we pray. Amen.